Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Ryan Kuhlenbeck is the co-founder and CEO of Pico MES, the digital manufacturing technology pioneer. His career spans a wide range of automotive manufacturing at General Motors, Tesla, and Alta Motors, where Ryan has experienced firsthand the real-world issues created by the manufacturing digital divide. Ryan founded Pico MES in 2019 after realizing the industry need for a manufacturing software focused on the needs of small to mid-sized manufacturers who make up 98% of the market. In advancing Pico MES's product, Ryan envisions a future where manufacturers can access a fully connected supply chain. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. Very excited to be here. Awesome. Well, Ryan, you've got a really diverse background, having worked at large automotive manufacturers like GM and Tesla, as well as smaller startups. I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey and what led you to found Pico MES. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, a little winding journey through the Midwest of various places. But yeah, I grew up in a small manufacturing town or just outside of one in central Illinois. Always into mechanical things, you know, cars very early on, hot rods in high school kind of thing with friends. And Went got an engineering degree out of a little school in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, which led me to General Motors. So spent from 2000 to, to 2010 at GM, left uh, for a personal life event that uh, then didn't work out and ended up at Tesla a couple of years later. Work-life balance is always a challenge. If you get to talk to anybody from Tesla, that's, that's kind of what it's known for. But I uh, was there for 2011, 12, and 13 through some fun times with the Model S launch. And then um, went to a cylinder uh, engine cylinder controls company, the ones that do really interesting cylinder deactivation technology that's now in GM Silverado. So that's a whole nother fun conversation. But And then had a chance to design, create, and run an electric motorcycle factory in the Bay Area where we built a performance dirt bike that's the only AMA podium finishing electric bike and they would let us play with the 450s that we could go beat but anyway uh, really kind of an interesting journey from big manufacturing down to small and then as far as how we ended up with pico in 2018 when ultimotors uh, went under folded through a whole lot of interesting reasons the choice was to go out into another factory and use software we didn't like or build another infrastructure uh, necessary to make that factory be efficient for the third time in my career, or try to go do something that we really cared about. And, you know, whether you're a GM, Tesla, Alta, doesn't really matter. Any company that is heavy on the supply base side of the house, you know, has hundreds or thousands of parts that have to show up. You start to realize that, you know, you can design the really coolest things on the planet, but if you can't get them made, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good, right? If you can't get what you need produced with quality every time, then it doesn't matter how awesome of a car we could design, we'd still be limited on getting it to market or it would cost too much or whatever it might be. So took the plunge and myself and two co-founders decided to try to do something about it and form a software solution that's targeting right at that that mid-sized manufacturer that makes up the supply base. Been on a journey for four and a half years, almost five years now, (laughs) through the venture world and beyond. So been an interesting run, but 
Very cool. And I know you're a big advocate in general for small and mid-sized manufacturing in our country. Same kind of general, you know, it's a, it's a big market, obviously, very big market. People outside of manufacturing think, that, think that's a niche, right? And uh, so that's where <laughs> my, my business focuses as well as a marketing agency. But what led you to focus on small and mid-sized rather than kind of going after the big enterprise organizations? I mean, from a business perspective, it makes total sense, right? To your point, you have 54% of all revenue. So I won't even talk about number of factories, but just revenue of goods produced in the U.S. is from factories with 500 people or less. Right? It is, it's the majority. The big factories that we all think about, like with the UIW strike going on right now, they produce about 40%. Like I think it's 43% last time I looked it up of output. So there's actually quite a big divide there, but the technology that's come out in the past has never really focused on the needs of small factories. There's always a fear of, can you get to them? Do they really want to improve? Things like that. So people would go whale hunting and try to land enterprise side of the house. I've never really been motivated by the business side. You never want to say that as CEO, especially the venture, but it's kind of the reality of what I cared about is the impact. You know, the town I grew up in, didn't have a General Motors factory and it had a bunch of suppliers in it, companies that made parts for air conditioners and things like that. And that industry is really what underpinned the town or led to a lot of struggles, frankly, when a lot of it went overseas. And I've just always thought that that size factory really is what manufacturing looks like. Maybe it's because I grew up in it or I went to all of these factories for different roles throughout my career, but that's what manufacturing looks like to me. You know, the media portrayal of the lights out robotic factory, that's fun to toy around with, but that's not what actual getting it done looks like. And there's just, there was always such a big divide between those areas from the technology you could bring to bear to solve a problem. And it's not an expertise problem. I mean, people in those factories are really, really smart people. You don't build a $50 million a year factory business without truly understanding the craft that you're running. But what they typically didn't have was a lot of software integration experience or expertise. So you can look at these solutions you read about in trade publications or you hear about, but you don't have any way to bring them to bear in there. And I just thought we could do something about it and maybe improve those towns like the one that I grew up in along the way. A little more stability, pride in what we do. Like Making things is really cool. I'm glad to see the homemakers, that movement kind of coming online, but maybe let's talk a little bit about how we make things at industrial scale, You know how it's made on steroids, if you will. And I think I just wanted something to do to help there instead of just disappearing into another factory. It's a passion of mine when it comes down to how I kind of grew up and where I spent a lot of my career. Yeah, I can relate to what you're talking about. It, you know, my Spent the last uh, 12, 15 years working mostly with kind of mid-sized American manufacturers and been inside of a lot of manufacturing facilities. You see the lives that you touch and all the the interesting things that are happening that, frankly, you don't really know about until you're inside the business or, or the industry and understand a little bit about how, how the supply chain works and who is helping who else up, up the supply chain. So it's been um, a pretty cool experience to work with and help some of these you know, often family-run businesses, second, third generation companies that have built something really interesting. Kind of for me, it's helping them bring their story to market and build awareness and help help put the spotlight on them. But um, yeah, so I can relate to what you're talking about for sure. <laughs> and some of them are owned by really big companies, right? A lot of them, big companies have grown through acquisition or vertical integration strategies. And yet they still operate as kind of their own either standalone piece or just that side of the factory still needs to kind of an enterprise style of solution, but it works for a smaller factory deployment. 
but I love the diversity of it. And then just the, yeah, the people that are involved and the pride of making things. I mean, think about it in the pandemic when we couldn't get the goods we wanted. All of a sudden, people started paying attention to what was happening in that factory and, and really started to value it a little more. And then as you kind of peel behind the curtain, you realize this is where the technology development is really happening right now. I mean, between robotics and advanced systems that, that bring together digital threads from different machines, you've got analytics that are really interesting and artificial intelligence or machine learning, which is what it really is. And then all of these kind of new styles of connected tools. So I, from an engineer's perspective, it's, it's candy land out there. It's, you can really find things that are truly fun to learn and experiment with if you're in the a factory that's willing to embrace it. Ryan, you were talking to me about the power of having a digital through line with data from suppliers and manufacturers all the way up to the OEMs. How does or what does that level of supply chain visibility enable? I think we're on a cusp here or on an edge of a really new generation in manufacturing where, you know, what we do and what your customers do on a regular basis, right? You're starting to see this digital capability getting built out in the supply chain. Unless, like, like I picture a world when 20% you know, some cliff, 20%, 30%, whatever it is of the suppliers out there have this digital backbone. And the data that today, you know, OEMs need for critical to quality features, or, you know, we'll call audit data, where you can see exactly how a part was made for some particular characteristic you negotiated with it. Today, you have to request that it's delayed 24 hours, maybe 48 hours or longer before you could see it. So it's not tactical can't actually do anything with it. And then often it's manually entered or it's not in an integrated system. So it's not that helpful. You know, it's it's important, but it's not helpful. Well, I picture this world when that 20 to 30% of factories have this digital backbone and can send it when they send the parts. You know, I'm not saying they're going to send everything, but send that audit data or whatever is critical to quality. And the next time there's an issue in the you know, the GM plant, like when I was working there. So I'll give you an example. When I was at a plant, they've they've since knocked down, but we were making Silverados every 53 seconds, I think. There's a new one rolling off the line. So if you have a part that doesn't fit, you've got 53 seconds to figure it out before the next truck shows up. Do you have one bad part? Do you have 500 parts sitting behind you that are bad? You have no information that you can bring to bear in that time scale. You know, roughly 10 minutes later, your little section of the line has shut down the next section of line. So within 10 minutes, now it's now the whole world's going, what's going on here? And how do we get this back up and running again? Still no more data. It's just <laughs> now you have more pressure to make the decision. Half an hour later, all of General Assembly's down. And by the end of the, you know, that shift, you've got the entire factory idled if you can't figure it out and solve it. And instead, picture a world where you scan a laser engraved barcode or a label that's printed on the side of it with your, your computer right there, hit a button, and here's the cradle to grave traceability. You can look up when the last quality check was done. When did this part run across the CMM last? Okay, interesting. Yeah, all right, we've got 50 of them here. I can see the excursion occurred. We missed it in our quality system. We'll fix that later. But for now, I need to find parts that are this serial number, and we can keep the line going. I mean, that's just like a tactical thing that, in the rest of your life, you would expect that thread to be connected. You order a part on Amazon and you can follow it all the way to your house. If I order a part to my factory, I can follow it till it hits the dock and then I have no idea where the hell it is on the other side of it, right? If I don't go track the damn thing down. And I think that bridging this together is just you know, the one example I gave for quality systems and interactions, but also you can collaborate 
between the factory that might be seeing things on the end and the supplier who's struggling because the design's difficult and yet they don't have anybody to talk about to talk to on the other side to help see hey if we adjusted this we could make these much better quicker cheaper whatever that might be or you know the cnc machine producing chips we know the exact alloy of those chips but that one particular factory might be too small to send it straight back to the smelter you know, but if you have a supply chain or multiple factories, you have this digital thread and you can bring that in, you can recycle it more efficiently. You know, the factory who's making the chips gets more money for their scrap because they could sell it for the alloy value. The smelter doesn't have to start from raw aluminum and re-alloy. Like, there's logistics movements. You've got the ability to manage inventory, which is a big problem right now in the automotive industry as they start shutting factories down, right? Watch the inventory build up. At least if you can see what's been built and what hasn't, the tier four could start to slow down long before the orders trickle their way down. I liken this to, you know, think of cell phones before smartphones, right? Like today we have a ton of apps, but there's no platform to bring them to bear. You know, you can use DC nut runners for quality inside of a factory, but you don't know how to hook them up from a software perspective. You can use, you know, all the way into the ERP connections and worker guidance solutions with video or augmented reality, all of these things. There's all these like things that are out there that each one of them solves a problem, but there's no platform. There's no structure that makes it incredibly easy for these factory teams to go grab them. And then for that data to benefit everybody in the supply chain. I could go on for a while about this because I just think it's a it's a big deal and not enough people talk about it. But it seems to me like the inevitable next step is factories improve their own operations through all these relative these are proven techniques at this point, right? You know if you implement a new digital backbone, you're looking at twenty to thirty percent improvements. You know, how many different case studies do you have to read to see that? But the there's a whole nother evolution that then can benefit across the supply chain if they're connected together. So it's an interesting world to me where I just see that as the biggest deal in 2030 is actually going to be that. It's going to be this ability for data to seamlessly move around without, you know, you don't even have to share the name of the company. It's the tier three or tier four. You just need to know where, you know, what was the diameter of the rotor shaft, you know, measured last time in the quality fixture. So because that's important to the person creating the shaft that's turning it into the stator and the stator really matters, sorry, the rotor and the rotor really matters to the guy making the stator and the person trying to push the bearings together so you can have an electric motor or the, you know, Chevy bolt or whatever it is you're producing. Tell me about what role you and Pico are playing kind of in you know, solving this challenge. Yeah. So the big thing for us in the Pico world is, is getting that digital backbone into the factories. So today in the mid-sized factory world, you'll see a lot of ERPs. That's kind of been the latest push is getting inventory and accounting systems to function and then order processing and management. That's really the function of the ERP. But then teams either have to take a module off of that ERP system and try to run the shop floor with it, which is not great. Like, do you really want accounting software at its core to try to run your shop floor. I mean, you can make it work if, it, if you have to, but we instead come in and try to provide a solution that is specifically for the shop floor. And then we integrate with the ERP. So there's a seamless connection of data. And then our goal is actually to kind of attack the death by a thousand cuts that most factories suffer from. You know, I want the domain expert on the floor to be able to say, okay, 
Jimmy's an excellent operator, but he only installed four bolts instead of five this time or forgot to torque the last one because somebody distracted him or there was an alarm on the machine or whatever it was. And that one got all the way down to the repair station before we found it. And it cost us three hours to tear the whole thing down, fix it, you know, put it back together once we realized, you know, part was vibrating or whatever that is. Today, you go to Jimmy, you say, don't ever do that again. Or you put Jane next to Jimmy and say, check his work. Well, that's that doesn't really solve the problem. It's like staring at the same thing day in and day out. You're still going to have things get past you. And instead, if that operator could go, we need a DC nut runner on here. It's 1500 bucks from Ingersoll Rand. All I got to do is buy one. It'll be here in two weeks and we will never deal with that problem again. We want that to be the answer. So Pico makes it perfectly seamless to hook up whatever tool might solve that problem for you. Or if it's a worker guidance thing and you need to show video because images didn't show how to route the harness properly, should have that just sitting there at your fingertips, ready to go. So that when you do get an opportunity to solve a problem forever, you do it. It's in a controlled environment. It's, you know, all the the version histories of everything that says how this part was built is still there. The digital thread is completely there for traceability information, but those tactical improvements can be brought to bear. And every week you pick up 1%, you know, half a percent, whatever that is in efficiency. Maybe you have a great week and you got 3% out of two thirds of your stations because you finally solved a perennial problem. And you look back at the end of the year and you go, we just doubled the profit margin. This business is viable. We should probably get more of this business, you know, whatever it might be. Or I didn't have to buy another machine because I now utilized mine 15% more and I met my increase in demand without having to spend a big capital outlay. That's what Pico visions, how we bring it to bear. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I'm really excited to announce an incredible event our team at Gorilla76 will be co-hosting in late January and early February of 2024 in Austin, Texas, just for marketers in the manufacturing sector. I'm going to hand it to our strategist, Peyton Warren, to give you the details. Hi, I'm Peyton Warren, strategist at Gorilla76. Over the past few years, our team has been running twice per month digital learning events for industrial marketers called Industrial Marketing Live. It's been a huge success, and we're seeing 50 to 100 manufacturing marketing folks show up regularly. But one thing this group has told us is that they've been itching for a live, in-person event just for them. Well, we're super excited to be teaming up with True Marketing and Kadena's Part Solutions to deliver exactly that. January 31st through February 2nd of 2024, we'll be co-hosting the Industrial Marketing Summit in Austin, Texas. We have an incredible lineup of speakers for day one who will be covering topics that include SEO in the dawning era of AI, high-impact product marketing, elevating the role of marketing within your manufacturing organization, and giving out a demand generation playbook for B2B manufacturers. And that just skims the surface. On day two, we'll be conducting in-depth breakout sessions to go deeper on some of these key topics and help you apply them inside your own organizations. Not only will this be an intensive learning event with some of the sharpest minds in the industrial marketing space, but we'll be hosting social events in the evenings with great food and venues for networking with other manufacturing folks who are trying to solve the same kinds of marketing challenges you are. We're limited to 300 seats, so visit industrialmarketingsummit.com to learn more and reserve your ticket. We'd love to see you in Austin. 
Ryan, whether it's on the assembly side of a manufacturer's business where you and your company Pico live or elsewhere in manufacturing, it's a fight for labor out there. As, as we all know, it has been for a while. It's not getting better. You know, Some of these things you've just been talking about here in terms of having the right tools and processes and data at the fingertips of the people who need them, you know, what, what role do you think that can play in helping with hiring, retention, you know, having the labor you need on the shop floor? Yeah, I think it's the biggest thing you can do, frankly. Uh, I know I'm biased, but I mean that truly. The number one issue in most factories is labor, right? Especially in the assembly space. It's skilled labor when you move into the machining world and things like that. To me, to solve this, you need to do a few things. One, when you do get really good skilled labor, you need to retain them and you need to maximize their output. And you can do that through the retention side of the house is just not make the day crappy, right? Like, do you really want to follow Bill around for three weeks and memorize what he does? And that's how you learn how to do your job and then be expected to be perfect for the next 20 years while you work there because you have no infrastructure to support you other than a clipboard and an end of line tester, maybe. Would you want to work in that space if you're used to, you know, pulling your phone out and going to YouTube anytime you have a question and answering it that way? Of course not. So there's a little bit of you know an infrastructure that a work environment that people actually want to work within, especially if you're looking for younger generation people to kind of work in your factory. But then the other side of it is I like, I'm, you know, a car guy by heart. So I, th- I talk a little bit about how race car drivers are so successful. If you think about pick your favorite race car driver of choice and why they're so good at it, it's because only 20% of their brain is driving the car, right? They're so in tune. They've been doing this for so long that that's muscle memory, right? Turning the wheel, hitting the brake at the right time, shifting gears, whatever it might be. And it frees up the rest of their brain to find the perfect turn in point or come up with a strategy on how they're going to pass this person or manage their tires or brakes or whatever it might be. Well, In the manufacturing world, I liken this to if you're going to do the same thing for eight hours a day and you're constantly in anxiety mode, trying to make sure you didn't forget something and you didn't forget to do something, then there's nothing left in your brain for how you could potentially improve it or, you know, collaborate with an engineer who's thinking about a new fixture or something that might be there. And if instead you have an infrastructure in front of you that that has reminders when you need them, stay out of your way when they don't, it has integrated tools so there's no chance of error, right? You cannot forget the barcode read or to write down the serial number equivalent because the torque tool won't turn on if it didn't get a valid barcode read. Or, you know, the CNC machine won't start if you didn't see the fasteners get torqued down that are holding the part in place. You know, that anxiety level drops and it frees up brain power to collaborate. Well, people like to do that. And again, I come back to how do you, you know, finding people is one side of the house, but retaining the one you have is arguably more important. You've already invested in them, or at least you went through the hiring process. You don't want to quit a week later. (laughs) So giving them an environment where they're more than just a robot, they're not there to just do the same task over and over again. You know, they can, if that's the type of work they like, that's great. But if you can enable 30% of them or whatever to also collaborate and come up with the next best thing, I just think that's a way to, well, we've seen it over and over again. The retention rates go through the roof in our factories because people are empowered on the collaboration side, but also their anxiety level drops and it's a better place to work, right? Interacting with technology instead of feeling like a robot. (laughs) I come back to, Treat them like you want to be treated yourself. Think about the environment that you would want to do for eight hours a day. How do you make that enjoyable? It's hard to throw somebody into the fire and 
not give them the tools and processes and things they need to, to succeed. And geez, if that can be your competitive advantage right now in a time when you can't find workers, I mean, what, what a great place to go all in. And it gives you the chance to hire people out of other industries. That's the main thing without taking a risk for quality. So when we talk about that skill level, yeah, you want your high school people to be able to do more that have been there, but also your entry level can change. You know, if you're competing with Taco Bell at 15 bucks an hour or whatever the starting wages in your area are, you know, no one may want to do that job either. But when they come into the factory world, now it's a completely different environment. Like it's a team level and there's data and you can see how you're good. And, you know, maybe there's feedback on each operation so you can gamify it a little bit. There's maybe a lot of factories. Most of the factories actually I go into now have some form of output based bonus system. And when there's actual feedback per cycle on how, how you did and where you could improve, which is like systems like ours, provide that right there on the screen for those that want to interact with it. You don't have to, if you don't want to, of course, but that's a, just a better environment than, you know, the alternative in other industries outside of manufacturing. And I think that's another way to win talent is giving pe- people a place to start and then they can fall in love with it. Like you and I have, and potentially go get an associate's degree and become a CNC programmer or whatever it is on the other side. But it, it just gives another path. And the more paths that people have into the industry and the more reasons they have to stay, the more likely we are to solve this and give time for technology like robotics and automation to fill in the gaps that we can't fill. Because some of this is demographic. Not every job is going to get filled the way we want it to. Ryan, so many manufacturers that I talk to and that my agency works with play some role along the automotive manufacturing supply chain. As automakers transition to electric vehicles, EVs, how can suppliers and mid-sized companies position themselves to enable those new technologies to successfully come to market? There's an interesting kind of difference here for people from the automotive industry. Right now, all the R&D dollars are going into EV, but the majority of vehicles produced are still gas or diesel powered. So we're kind of in this transition. So if you think about how to position yourself for that, when it's time to go get the new product, General Motors isn't sourcing an inverter they've made for 50 years, right? Or even 20 years. It's new to them. So they need to land that in a factory they trust or one that can send data to them so that they can build trust over time because they know it's perfect. So this is where that connected supply chain becomes a real advantage. If you have you know, a digital backbone and you want to make bus bars for it or a circuit board enclosures, whatever it might be, and you can prove that you did it right, you've de-risked that new technology for them from a launch perspective. And when you're trying to balance a thousand new parts or 500 new parts for a vehicle, that's a big deal, right? If that's one thing you don't have to worry about. And then the second side of this, which I think is funny, again, is just a reminder, oh, and by the way, you pick up a significant efficiency gain when these these solutions are in place so your business runs better, which allows you to be competitive price-wise. And then if I've got something new that has risk for change because I haven't built it for 20 years, if I can build that locally... I can react significantly faster and more efficient if I need to make a change mid-cycle, middle of the year, whatever it might be. If I have 16 weeks of pipeline on the water between me and you know a, a Malaysian factory, for example, when I decide to make a change, I have to build for 16 weeks before I can even realize that. And then, or I have to scrap it, which is even worse. If I'm making them in Kansas and producing the truck in Indiana, I've got to wait two weeks and I can realize that change, right? That's it. There's just this huge flexibility that comes from local supply. 
but I can't do that if it's going to cost me 30% more or 40% more on every single part. So to me, to really take advantage, this is an opportunity where winners and losers are going to change, right? This is a traditional large tier ones and tier twos are at risk because they now have to make something new. It's an opportunity for others to win in that market. And I think those that do have these types of capabilities will take advantage and really win. And then as that market grows, you grow with it. It's probably going to be fairly predictable, unlike a hockey stick. It's going to, they're going to do this vehicle, then that vehicle, then this one, and the volumes will increase from 40,000 units a year to 80, to eventually up to, you know, Silverado territory 20 years from now. So you can actually scale your business nicely too. To me, it's, or you can hang out and not change and wait and see what happens. And I'm pretty sure we know what that answer looks like. <laughs> so one way or the other. Ryan, anything I did not ask you about today that you'd like to add to the conversation? A pretty comprehensive conversation so far. Apologies for rambling in a couple of areas, but no, I think the one thing I'll mention is for those that are interested in a digital backbone to their factory, we call it an MES, Manufacturing Execution System. Other people call it factory OS or IoT or whatever it is. I would just challenge people to make sure that they they think about the elements they truly need, like you don't need to connect everything. What are you? What is the business value? Where, where are the things that, that you actually need to connect? And then what will allow you to be successful at doing that quickly so you can learn, right? It's called continuous improvement. I don't think anybody's advocated for static improvement. If somebody did, I apologize. Like that might be their way of going about it. But to me, it's if I'm going to continuously improve, I need a system that allows me to continuously make changes to it so that I can find it. And if you don't have a system that you find easy to use, comfortable, flexible, yet comprehensive enough to solve the actual business problems, then you should keep looking. So it's my advice is think about, you know, kind of what this looks like as you roll it out over the course of six months to six years. And just make sure you feel comfortable that, yeah, I don't know where I'm going to be a year from now, but I think this will give me flexibility to figure it out. Well said, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Great conversation today. Um, can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Pico MES? Yeah, you can find Pico on social media. LinkedIn is the one we're on the most. Uh, you can visit our website, which is picomes.com. Uh, you can always reach me. I'm available through the contact methods on those or on LinkedIn as well. And happy to engage with anybody along the way. Beautiful. Well, Ryan, I appreciate you doing this today. Oh, thanks so much, Joe. This is really fun. <laughs> awesome. I agree. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.